0: Welcome to Snapshots of Jesus. And I want to talk about a snapshot of Jesus Christ as a friend. Everyone needs a friend. Everyone needs a friend. Today I want to do something just a little different. I'm going to tell you my personal experience with my encounter with this Jesus I want to give you a snapshot of how Jesus Christ came to change my life and to give me the friend that I've had through these years. From gangs to God, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father God, we pray that we might know you tonight as a friend. That we might be touched by your love. We might feel the feeling we felt when we first felt that feeling. And we give you honor and praise and glory as always. Because all we are or ever hope to be, we owe to you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. There's a growing tendency in our era towards agnosticism and atheism. In fact, if one word could sum up the attitude that's present today in our modern culture, we would have to say it's doubt. We are now reaping the results of so-called concerted effort towards materialistic humanism, naturalism, and so-called intellectual denial of the existence, the reality of God. If any belief in God today, it's kind of vague, kind of a Casper, the friendly ghost type of being. We believe the arguments of Robert Ingersoll and other infidels. We've been deceived by a Russian cosmonaut who flew around the outskirts of God's heaven. And when he came back to earth, he said, I didn't see any angels. (laughs) There must not be a God. He forgot that God is found in peculiar places, like in a crib and on a cross and in the heart of a dying thief. We've listened to the cries of radical theologians who who say, "Well, well, God doesn't really speak to the needs of mankind. He's not really talking to my need. So therefore, if God doesn't address the needs of our modern culture, then God is dead. At least since He doesn't speak, He must be dead. We've raised through a corrupt system of education, humanistic educational system, that, For the past three decades, we've been brainwashed and a whole generation have disbelieved in a creator God. We've dismissed God from the classroom. We've dismissed the Bible from the classroom. We've We've dismissed the Ten Commandments from the classroom. And now we're reaping what we have sown. David, the psalmist, looking down through prophetic eyes, saw this generation, saw this culture, and he said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And we hear from a lot of fools today. But today I want to bear my testimony that God lives, that God loves, and that God saves. In spite of Marxist atheism, in spite of liberal theologians, in spite of Robert Ingersoll and the other infidels, in spite of humanistic, materialistic, naturalistic, The godless system of education, God lives and God loves and God saves. The Christ who lived 1,900 years ago lives today in spirit. The Christ who walked the crowded streets of Jerusalem, walked the crowded streets of America, the Western world, and the entire world, even now. The Christ who saved then, saves now. For I heard the footsteps of Christ, echoing and re-echoing through the asphalt jungle. For I felt the hand reach out and touch the hardened heart of a young man gone berserk. I saw a cross rising above the tenements. Now people say, well, prove to me there's a God. I can't prove to you with mathematical equations. I can't put God in a test tube. How can you put something so big and majestic in a test tube? If your God is as big as your test tube, I feel sorry for you. I believe because I felt his touch. I've experienced his care. I experienced the love that's so unconditional that he loved me while I was a sinner and while I'm a sinner. I've seen my life transformed. I mean, taken out of the gutter, saved to the uttermost. Now, no one can explain this This outside of conversion, outside the Bible. I mean, you can't explain how a hardened criminal, how a hardened young teenager who lived a sadistic life, who hated, who hurt, and his whole life was bound up in himself, could ever be changed. How do you explain that? Psychologists can't explain it. Sociologists can't explain it. You see, they're at a loss to explain it. God alone can explain it. And he does here, and he says, Rebirth! I don't know why some churches think they have a corner on it. Because I found it not even in a church. I was sharing faith one day with a bartender. And I shared the gospel with him. You say, well, how did you get to the bartender? Well, I was there with the bartender. And, you know, Christ was always at the party trying to win the lost. And so I was there. And and I was trying to win this man. So I led him to Christ. But but as I was trying to, he he says, oh, he says, I said, let's pray. He said, in a bar? I said, would you like to give your heart to Christ? In a bar? I guess he thought he had to go to church to get saved. I guess he thought he had to, you know, be with little music playing. And right there I led him to Christ. His life was transformed, changed. Listen, he became an asset to the Christian church and an asset to himself. An asset to himself. It's available to every one of us, everywhere, in any place. And it's simply by believing it. Now, the Bible says in Acts 3, verse 19, it says these words, listen to them as we look at them on the screen. Notice, repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that, he says, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And then he says in Acts 2, verse 21, he again tells us here, plainly specifically and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the lord shall be saved and then again in john chapter 3 in case you have question again in john chapter 3 verse 5 jesus answered most assuredly i say to you unless one is born of the water and born of the spirit he cannot enter He cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he says it again in John 3, verse 7. Notice what he says. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Then in verse 14 through 17, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, the Bible says, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoso believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoso believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The purpose for the incarnation of the Son of God. The purpose for the birth of the Son of God. The purpose for the perfect life of the Son of God. The purpose for the death of the Son of God was to redeem and to save man from their sins. Everywhere in Scripture you find it. The power of God at work to change a life. That's what Christianity is about. It's not about going to a beautiful church, now mega churches with beautiful music and Broadway play and and, and, I mean all this it's about men and women encountering Jesus Christ. Men and women being saved from their sins and being of value to culture and to society, to the church and to the kingdom of Christ. Everywhere I look in the Bible, I find the power of God. I mean, it's, it's called conversion. Stories tumble about Peter, the blustering, blundering, cursing fisherman. Shadow of Christ falls upon Peter, says, Peter, I want you to follow me. And there's that old drunken sailor. His life's transformed. Saul, persecutor, his own personal jihad against Christianity. He thought he could defeat Christ, but there, Christ brought him to his knees on Damascus Road and he called out to him, and Saul became Paul. One thing evident the thief on the cross. there's two thieves on the cross. One lifts himself up, says, if you be the Son of God, take us down from the cross and we'll believe you. And the other thief says, when you come in your kingdom, remember me. And Christ says, with every drop of blood that pours for me, you will be with me in paradise. You'd come to seek and to save. One thing is evident. Lives were dramatically changed. Lives were powerfully changed. It happened for Peter by the turquoise blue water of Galilee. It happened for Paul on the road to Damascus. It happened for a thief outside Jerusalem's wall on a hill called Golgotha. It happened for Ron Halberson in a Brooklyn street. Now listen to me. Any of you have been in New York? Let me see your hands. Well, a few of you have lived. I was born in New York. New York's an exciting city, by the way. It's, it's a beautiful city. There's opera houses, universities, theaters, museums, Wall Street. But there's another side of my city. I mean, death waits in many ways in my city. A knife in the ribs, a needle in the vein, a bullet in the brain. More than 475,000 drug addicts in my city. It has over 250,000 homeless. Over 2,000 homicides every year. I was born in that city. And by the grace of God, I would be born again in that city. I was born in a place called Coney Island. Coney Island is a part of Brooklyn. At one time, Brooklyn was the fourth largest city in America. Brooklyn. You can tell Brooklyn, hey, listen to me. You can take the boy out of Brooklyn, but you can't take the Brooklyn out of the boy. I was born in Brooklyn. We lived in Coney Island. I was raised in Coney Island. Coney Island is the, is the uh, amusement center of, Brook- of Brooklyn, of New York. We have the Ferris wheel, and you haven't seen a Ferris wheel. We have the Cyclone roller coaster. We, we have, I mean, we have Nathan's hot dog stand. We have Knish's. I mean, we have pizza. You have never eaten pizza. They haven't had such good pizza since Moses. When he received that round white thing, the Italians took and put sauce on it and called it pizza. It was called manna in the days of Moses. And I was born there, the tenements. The tenements like beaten old men. They look out over the city. I mean, it's a terrible set. In fact, my tenement was so bad, it was behind all the other tenements. It was stuck out in an old lot. Even my neighborhood was embarrassed by my house. I was born in poverty. And listen to me, it's hard. People say to me all the time, why don't those people get out? Have you ever tried to get out of quicksand? My daddy was one of the hardest working men I've ever known, but he never had much money. They never got paid much. He was always trying to do better can't explain to you poverty. In fact, Gandhi said of poverty, poverty is the worst kind of violence. And it was violent on me. It beat me. And I hated. And I learned to hate because of my... You see, I... I, I Hate fostered and festered in my mind and it came out in violence. I, I struck back at everything that moved. In that neighborhood, 70% of the kids had police records before 16. In that neighborhood, wouldn't be strange to walk down the street as I was one day as a little boy and a man laying in the gutter, newspaper over, wind blew it away and there was a hatchet in his head. It wasn't strange to see a car pull around the corner, door open, they throw out a stiff, a dead person on the street. It wasn't strange. It wasn't strange when you understood that. And and, and, uh, juvenile crime, there was... I stole my first car. Hot wire. stole my first car. I was 14. I was breaking and entering by the time I was 15. Mugging by the time I was 16. I entered into the world of the big blame argument. And all my troubles were because of my parents. All my trouble was because of the law. All my trouble was because of my teachers. I blamed everybody but Ron Halverson. This was my world. Coney Allen. By the way, Coney Allen, it was organized crime. The Mafia. But they were called, Murder Incorporated was in Coney Island. For $200 or what, you could have someone murdered in my neighborhood. Life was cheap. This was my world. This was my playground. You ran to survive. You learned to fight to survive. In that ghetto, in that place, my mother was trying to raise five boys. Five boys. And so the two types of crime, we used to admire the mafia because we thought, wow, they drove big cars and they had nice thousand dollar suits. And, you know, they had money. And one of us, you see, you you thought maybe we could work our way up and maybe we could be in the mafia. And and, and so that was our dream. But there was unorganized crime. Young people, I'm talking about the little people, the violent streets, the teenage gangs, I mean, death-weighted around every corner, up every alleyway. I mean, there was, we were fighting. We had to learn to fight to survive. You had to know how to fight or you would die. My daddy was a prize fighter, professional fighter for, I think it was eight fights. He won seven and drew one. And my mama told him to quit the ring or else and he didn't want to fight mama, so he quit. And and you know how it is with, with a person when, when a father, when he, Wanted to be something he wasn't, so he wants his sons to be. That's why they put little helmets on these little kids, and I'm running around beating each other's brains out so they might be the super quarterback that dad wanted to be. Well, my dad wanted to be light heavyweight champion of the world, so he looked around. There were five boys. I was the biggest when I was born. And so he used to come home from work. We had a big heavy bag in in the basement of our tenement and a light bag and I would have to hit it and I was little. I mean, I was really little starting the peewee league fighting my way up. I started as a featherweight. Now I'm a super heavyweight. (laughs) Thought that was funny, huh, preacher? Now I'm a superhero. But I, my dad, he had me run so much. Every day I had to run and I had to hit the heavy bag, hit the light bag. Then I joined the Ocean Avenue Boxing Club. And, and this was a, a training center for young fighters that, that were hopeful of becoming professional fighters. And out of that club in Brooklyn, there came out um, uh, fighters, great fighters out of that club. Out of the clubs in Brooklyn, the boxing clubs, Floyd Patterson came out of that club. Murray Glazier, great uh, middleweight, came out of it. I mean, great fighters came out. And we thought if we could just fight, why, why we could learn to fight in the ring, we would be good in the street. Now, the teachers didn't think that. The managers, they thought if we could teach them to fight in the ring, they wouldn't fight in the street. And there I was trained three hours a night, five nights a week to be a prize fighter. You can never succeed in anything you do without working at it. A lot of people say, I want to be a super Christian and don't spend 5 minutes a day working at it how's that going to happen so that was boxing and training and i want we used to have fights from, from all the boxing clubs all of new york city would come together and we would we would box and and would have tournaments and, and i want to be in this tournament and, and uh, it was interesting because i mean i kept bugging my manager he said well you're not quite ready i said oh i'm ready man i'm ready i could take out anything come on give me a chance and and so the tournament came By the way, my ring name was Killer Halverson. Come on, this pretty face. (laughs) Article from the New York Mirror, New York News. Killer Halverson, Coney Allen. First tournament fight. I felt like Paul the Apostles fighter. I was beating the air, and this guy was beating up on my head. Well, some of you get that by Tuesday. And so I was beating on the air. He was beating up on my head. And first round, I finally found my way to the corner, sat down. My manager stuck his head through the ropes. He was a great optimist. He says, man, you're doing good. <laughs> the funny thing about it, in our boxing club, we were so poor. We didn't have these fancy robes, fancy I mean, bathing suit. We had one mouthpiece in our club. <laughs> well, you got the Drift. And so I found, a, I found a, shout out, you're doing great. I said, hey, man, he's in the purple trunks. The boy was from the CYO, Catholic Youth Organization. In fact, just before the bell rang in the first round, he got down in his corner said a prayer. I knew right away he had something going for him I didn't have going for me. <laughs> so there was, Killer Halverson, round two, came out. Boom, boom. I'm beating the air. He's beating up on my head. Finally hit me with a right cross or a left. Doesn't matter. When you're hit, you're hit. (laughs) I mean, some of you remember. Your legs go one way. Your body goes another way. And there I was, flat on my back, killer Halverson. One. You know, they tell me about fast count. I never had a fast count. (laughs) Two. Finally got to nine, and the bell rang. In those days, when the bell rang at the count of nine, you were saved by the bell. I didn't even want to be saved. Dragged me to the corner. Dragged me to the corner. Took out the smelling sauce. Then he asked those dumb questions. How many fingers do I have on that hand? Ten? What's your name? Who cares? (laughs) I went out the third round. I knocked him through the ropes. I became a champion, light heavyweight. Hey, by the way, I learned a lesson. Listen to me, kids. Listen to me, teenagers. Listen to me, young adults. Listen to me, you older people. When you're knocked down, boom, you're beat up. Your manager, Jesus Christ, will come through the ropes to you. Listen to me. He'll pick you up. Take you to His corner. Take out the smelling sauce, which is the grace of God. And He can revive you. You're not a loser. You can be a winner with Jesus Christ. Can you say amen in this place? You can be a winner. But a young person really doesn't succeed. In our neighborhood, not as only as a boxer, but you don't really succeed until you join a gang. Now in the fifties and sixties there were almost two hundred fighting gangs in the city of New York. Someone's up to four hundred fighting members in a gang. The Mau Maus. They flew their colors, you could tell a Mau Mau, he had his fedora, his little red feather. He had his cane, opened the cane as a big blade. The Mau Mau's, they came. The swords came, and the Amboy Dukes from Lower East Side, and, and the bishops came and fought, and the chaplains, 400 strong from Bedford Stye, and the beachcombers. Man, I thought, hey, I'm fighting in a ring, I'm somebody in a ring. I want to be a gangbanger, man. I'm going to be cool. Hey, by the way, most of my friends are really cool, they're dead that's as cool as you get that's as cool as you get and so I was initiated into a gang you don't just join a gang you're initiated into the gang so they brought me down to the beach Coney Island Beach Rolled me in the salt water, tied me to a piling, took the garrison belt with a big buckle and whipped me. You couldn't cry out because if you cried out. There was a soldier, what they called soldier, on one side with a switchblade another on the other side. they come up under your armpit so they cut a C in your forehead or in your back. And so they beat me. And I was cool. I was tough. I was nobody. And I had no friend. So, man, the hood is my home, my homies, my family, my friends. I was initiated into the beachcombers. Became a soldier in the beachcombers. By the way, those gangs were well well organized in those days, as they are today. But they weren't just selling drugs and doing those. They were fighting. They were fighting for turf, fighting for not like today. Now it's... But anyway, those gangs... You had to be initiated into them. They were well organized. There was a president, a vice president, a light-up man. He took care of the weapons. Talk about sort of shotguns. We talk about billy clubs, baseball bats drilled filled with lead. Stiletto, push-button blade, go through a three-quarter inch piece of plywood. And he took care of the weapons, the light-up man. And there was the treasurer, took care of the loot. And then there was the council of war, every gang, council of war. If we were going to war against the Mau Mau's, or the war, if they were going to go to war against us, or any gang in the city, if they were going to go to war, the Council of War met, and then the place was decided on. I can't describe for you what it's like. 200 guys on a schoolyard, fighting back-to-back with an ash barrel, cover on your arm, switchblade in your hand, baseball bat in your hand. Seeing young boys fall in the gutter, their stomachs slit open, they're crying for their mothers. One night, my best friend, 16 years old, Johnny, had his head blown off his shoulders. He died at 16 in a pool of blood. That's really cool. And you know the coolest thing about it? I initiated him into the gang. Try to live with that a lifetime. That was my world. Beach coma. Fought my way up, became a leader in the beach court. So there I was, Ron Halverson, killer. I mean, fighting in a ring, fighting in the streets, love to fight. I mean, any reason to fight. Run a man's face down a brick wall, stomp him into the ground, that meant nothing. That meant nothing. That was my world. That was the ghetto. That was, hey. That was my family. But I couldn't trust any of them. Not really. Not really. Why do we fight, people say? Well, we wanted a turf, a little more turf. Well, maybe someone slighted a girlfriend of ours. So we go to fight even to death. They would come from the South Bronx and they would come from Hell's Kitchen, and would come and fight on the beach and bury the dead in the sand. And I was without a friend. I was lost. And I was miserable. And God began to move. It's amazing. One teenager, listen to me, one teenager, was converted to Christ in my neighborhood. That's one. A lot of people say to me, you know, one person, we can't make a difference. One teenager converted. He's in Brooklyn. He's in Coney Island. He's sharing his faith. He's a 15-year-old teenager. Here I am, black leather jacket. Hey, I'm flying my colors. Skull, blood dripping over the skull. Motorcycle boots, switchblade in my pocket. I'm cool. Here's a 15-year-old boy in love with Jesus Christ, a 15-year-old boy who shared Christ wherever he went. He wasn't afraid of nothing and no one. And he'd walk through the neighborhood with a smile on his face. We'd look at him. We we laughed. We named him Isaiah. I thought that was funny until I got converted. They called me Jeremiah. And you can figure that one out. You figure that out. That's my friend. And he comes to share faith with standing on a street corner looking cool man Sideburns, d.a. you know Ada Fonz wasn't cool i was cool jim tries to share faith with the gangbangers he tried to share faith and we laughed at him and made fun of him and but down deep in our heart we envied him because every time i walked by an alleyway i had to look down to be sure every time i heard a siren Toom, I ducked and hid. Every time I heard steps behind me, I ran. Because that was my world, living in the shadow of death. But he wanted to share faith. And I remember one time he came up to me, and says, hey, would you go to a Bible study with me? A Bible study? I couldn't even read. I was 16 years old. I was functionally illiterate. I was in high school and I couldn't read. You say, how could you get to high school and not read? If you... If you are a teacher and had me in your class, you would graduate me to the next class too. Just to get rid of me. I'll tell you, school, well, I'll tell you something about that later. But anyway, there's Jim. He's sharing faith. He's talking about Jesus Christ. He's telling about the gospel. And, 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 and there was such a change in Jim. And, you know, we all envy him, but we, you know, we... Finally, after a while, he would come by would stop cursing. I mean, we'd stop being cool. We just, oh, it is, here comes Isaiah. You know, we feel I don't know. I mean, looking around, maybe God would strike us any moment, you know. I mean, and there's Jim. He went off to a Christian school in Queens, had to travel two hours each way. I graduated, I went to a vocational high school. Really it was a preparation for reform school. Hey, it's You run up the down staircase and find a young boy has slit his stomach open and robbed him for his cookie money. Or a young man overdosed. Hey, by the way, don't tell me about drugs. Don't tell me about that world. I spent eight, ten years of my ministry for the drug addicts in America. Don't you talk to me about the high. I'll show you for every high you have 10,000 lows. They would overdose, the kid on 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 a school roof and they'd strip him of anything worth any money and they'd throw him over the roof. That was his friends. I found an 8-year-old boy. I was witnessing for Christ in Harlem and I found an 8-year-old boy with a needle stuck in his arm and he's dying. He died in my arm. Don't you tell me about drugs. I mean, I went to vocational high school. It was a training school. I was going to Learn to fix cars. I stole cars. I figured I could learn to fix them. Don't know why if I needed another one easy to get another car and fix it, but we'd play basketball and the cheerleaders from the other school would come, and the whole 60th precinct of policemen had to be in front of them, protecting them. That's how bad this place was. I mean, we were so dumb. you're supposed to say, "How dumb? Come on now. I mean, we were so dumb in that school. One day the teacher passed out a test. And it was in Spanish because there were a lot of Puerto Ricans in our school. And they made a mistake and passed out the wrong test. We took it. (laughs) One week I was playing hooky. Played hooky so much. I guess they call it hooky out here. You know, it's supposed to be in school or not. I played hooky so much, I had my own tune officer. My mother spent more time in high school than I did. One day I was playing hooky, I was walking away from school, and I saw my friend Richard just got out of reform school. He's breathing the air in Brooklyn. It's fresh. By the way, the, the air is fresh in Brooklyn when you get out of reform school. And he said, hey, man, where are you going? I said, hey, man, I'm going, I'm going out. I'm, I'm going to play hooky. He says, no, I can't play hooky. I said, come on. And then I thought about this kid, Jim, Isaiah. He's out in a Christian school. I said, hey, man, they know we go into the boardwalk, play dice. We go down to the pool hall. They catch us. But I know a perfect place, a Christian school. Who will look for you and me in a Christian school? And that was logic even for Richard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the subway becomes the elevator train in Coney Island. We kind of climb up, run across the track. you got to jump over the track, hit the third rail you fry. you got to run between trains, say 15 cents in those days. Went way out to Queens. There I was, black leather jacket, skull, blood, motorcycle boots, looking cool. Walk into this Christian school, it's quiet. I'm used to guys fighting it out. I'm used to cops coming, surrounding the class, then taking someone off, wouldn't see them six months, a year. I mean, I'm used to f- where they're holding teachers out windows. I mean, this is a tough place. And here it is, quiet. I said to my friend, I said, man, this can't be a school. This has got to be a morgue. I mean, there's something. W- nothing's moving here. Nothing's moving. And just then a teacher came down sent Santa Carter. She looked at me and she said, can I help you? And you being cool, I said, yeah, man. Now, we knew the difference, but, you know, we're cool. We're looking for Jim Landis. Does he go to school here? Oh, yes, he's, he's up in chapel. I've never been in a chapel in my life. I didn't know what a chapel. She said, it's like assembly in public school. Would you like to go? I said, yeah, I don't want to go out there. So we went up in the chapel. Just as I got my hand on the door, she says, oh, by the way, it's week of prayer. I started to laugh. I couldn't stop. I said to my friend Richard, a week of prayer. I can't pray five seconds. How do they pray for a whole week? <laughs> it's amazing. My first time. Sat in the last row. That afternoon, I didn't get too much religion in the morning. That afternoon we stole a boat, my brother and I. Went fishing. Still love to fish. Every time we come home, I says, catch any. I said, no, honey, I went fishing. Catching is another sport. <laughs> so I went fishing in a stolen boat, my brother and I, and we're out in a stolen boat and a storm comes up. You know, I mean, all of a sudden we're, we're out in a place called Gravesend Bay. If you ever go across the Varrazano Bridge from, from Staten Island, you look off to the right, that's Coney Island. Now they don't have the tenement section there. They have these tall buildings, but there was tenement section when I grew up. Gravesend Bay, and that's where the East River and the Hudson River come out, sweep out through the narrows and out into the ocean. Here we are, rowing out. Storm comes up. Water's coming over the boat. My brother says, hey man, bail. So I take my motorcycle boot off. I'm trying to bail it out, bail it out. He says, bail. He says, bail. I says, bail? I, says, bail. I said, I can't do it. I said, you bail. He says, you row. Just then the tide changed three feet forward, seven feet back. Have you ever tried to row against the tide? The boat's filling up. I fell down on my knees, prayed my first prayer. By the way, there are no atheists in sinking boats (laughs) or crashing planes. The death angel moves around your heart. I don't care how cool you are. I said, God, get me in and I'll be good. And you know, isn't it nice that God heard the prayer? Yeah. You teach kids that you teach kids that God only hears the prayers of good little kids and good little girls. That's where you're wrong. He hears the prayers of bad little boys and bad little girls. And He, because He's good, loves them. <laughs> so there I was. There was a break in the cloud. Have you ever been in a storm in the, the wind? Breaks the cloud, the sun comes down right on our little boat. Not my little boat, whoever's little boat it was. And a speedboat came by, hooked us up, brought us in. I got my feet on the ground and I forgot the prayer. How many of you done that? And I, come on now. And uh, you know, you get the doctor's report. Boy, I better get back to church. I better start going again. I mean, I got to be. Ah, come on. And then you forget it. God never forgets it. Every promise he writes down. Every promise. So next day, I played hooky with my friend Richard, just out of reform school, went out to the academy. We listened a little bit. I was looking at the girl, checking the chicks out, you know, and <laughs> looking cool. That afternoon, we were going to have a block party in my neighborhood. Whenever we had a block party, we'd put the ash barrels over the corner, over the street, so no one could drive in. And then we'd put it over the other side. No one would drive in. Put up the ghetto box. My man, we could, boom, rock and roll. And, and, and we would have to get certain things for the party. My president gave me a little slip and said, eclairs, then meringue pies. All those things are not good for you now, but when you get to heaven, be real nice. I'm going to have a eclair tree right there in heaven. Believe me. (laughs) So I broke into Brighton Beach Bakery, back window. You know, the little white boxes, you put all those things. I was piling it up, man, with them in meringue. I mean, it's piled high. Why well, go out the back window, go out the front door, go out onto Neptune Avenue, and six blocks up onto Neptune, a patrol car. And being a theologian, I dropped what I had in my hands and started to run. <laughs> Ran down an alleyway. You see, my neighborhood is so bad, they walk in threes, even to this day. Patrolmen. They don't leave their car until they're sure. Because what we used to do was get them to run us run after us, and then someone jump in a patrol car, riding off into the ocean. So, you know, they... Or throw ash barrels off the roof down. So I run down, and it's a dead-end alley. There's no way out. So now I'm coming with the second theological thing. How will I explain this? Well, officer, I was walking along, stepped in these cream puffs. It's terrible. (laughs) Just then I noticed a fire escape on the side of the building. Jumped up, pulled the ladder down, started running up. You can't run up quiet up a fire escape. And the police they're waiting, they're waiting, hoping I get away. Finally come around and says, Stop raw shooters up to the roof. Man, I was I would outrun the bullet. Gone. Next day, out to that academy, listen to them preach. This preacher talking about Christ. I, I started to listen a little bit. I mean, I first slid down in my seat. trying. Don't ever slide down in a seat when I'm preaching, kids. Let me tell you. Because I'll send the Holy Spirit after you. You will never sit like that again. <laughs> okay, get it? They get my drift. They get my drift. So there I was. Next day out at Greater New York Academy, out at that academy. And uh, that night I needed some money. And uh, what I used to do sometimes is get between the Van Sicken Station and, and the Brighton Beach Projects and get in a dark place. Or someone come by with their pocketbook, a little old lady, run out, grab the pocketbook. If they held on and knock them down, that's what sin does to you. So that night I ran out, grabbed the pocketbook, started pushing. She pulled back, screamed. And for the first time in my life, I started to cry. Something happened to me. Unconsciously, I was sitting in that meeting. That morning, something happened. For the first time in my life, I started to cry. I let go of the pocketbook. I ran, man, I ran that night. Fell between ash barrels in an alleyway and all night long, I wondered, what was wrong with me? Was I going crazy? What is this? Here I am. I'm Ron Halverson. I'm Killer Halverson, man. I'm the man. Look at me. I I didn't know what it was then. I know what it is now. It was the Holy Spirit of God. He was speaking to my heart. Hey, listen to me. When the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart, you better not refuse Him because that's the only sin that God cannot forgive. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When He calls and you say, well, I'm not quite ready. Yet, or, or your parent comes up to you and says, well, I don't know, son. What do you know about it, parent? What do you know about it, teacher? When the Holy Spirit of God speaks, He talks to your toe. I mean, He gets to your feet, your heart, your head, your hand. I cried all night. Next day went out to, the, to that academy. Preacher talked about this Christ dying on the cross for a thief. And I thought, wow, if Jesus Christ could die for a thief and a nobody in a Brooklyn street. Couldn't he die? I mean, for a thief on the cross, wouldn't he die for a thief in a Brooklyn street? Brooklyn street. For the first time in my life, I felt something akin to a touch of God. There was black leather jacket, skull, blood dripping over the skull, switched back right into my pocket. My friend Richard just at a reform school. The Holy Spirit speaking to, speaking to my heart. That night, that night, I was supposed to go steal a car with a bunch of the boys. Went to the door about ready to leave the house and there's a knock on the door and there's standing this young Christian, Jimmy Landis, There's a Bible in his hand. He says, I come to study the Bible with you, Ron. I told my friends I'm not going out that night. Hey, that night my friends were caught stealing a car and sent away to prison. I went from that experience to get to know God. From that knock on the door, this gang banger, listened to me, cool, tough, mean, vicious, was touched by the warmth of the Spirit of God that night I studied the Bible. I couldn't read it then and so he had to read it to me. But that night I was determined I would learn to read. Next day I went out to this place. My friend Richard went with me. preacher talked about Christ dying on the cross and then he said, is there anyone here that would like to decide for Jesus? Now those kids, they were kind of gospel and They had heard it so many times, you know, and familiarity often breeds contempt. Feel for them. And I remember I stood up, switchblade in my pocket, black leather jacket, skull and crossbones. I turned to my friend I said, Richard, will you come? Listen to what he said. It costs too much to be a Christian but there were tears in his eyes. He refused. By the way, my friend Richard, a few years later, was arrested for murder. Spent the rest of his life in prison. And I've spent a life productive traveling the four corners of the earth to almost every continent in the world preaching the gospel of Jesus, inviting men and women and young people to find Christ as well. My life was changed. My life was changed in such a way, literate, fighting, gangbanger. And now one who... I went to the library and I got these little books out, you know, spot runs and jumps, you know, and Nancy and, you know, the, I'm, I'm hiding them in my motorcycle jacket. <laughs> my mother saw me one day. She said, son, can't you read? I said, No, mama. She said, but you're in high school. And I had my mother read me the Bible. The first person I led to Christ, to baptism, was my mother. She taught me to read. Two years later, I was at a college. They looked at me, and they listened to me, and they heard me. They says, oh, no, you can't ever do this. I want to tell you all things are possible to him who believes. Hey, I'm not proud that I have a... Hey, I was... uh, when I first had my IQ, it was 98. Now it's 99, but it was 98. But I'm not ashamed of that. God opened a whole world for me, a new world for me. And I discovered that it's better to serve Jesus in jazz. Listen to me, I discovered it's better to love people than hurt people. And I learned that all from Jesus Christ. And I've had a message to give around the world to everybody that there is hope for you. I want to tell you, teenage here, you think you're the worst in the school. You're the worst in the neighborhood. You are, the, you are not the worst in the sight of God. He can change you and make you productive and give you a productive life. I want to tell everyone here that Jesus Christ is alive and He's real. He touched me, and I'm alive, and I'm real. (laughs) Father, which art in heaven, I thank you for the grace of God. I thank you that you would lean out of heaven with your love and touch the hardened heart of a kid lost without a friend, that you would love me the way you've loved me. Everything I have, God, I owe to you. The shoes on my feet. Clothes on my back. Beautiful wife and children. Grandchildren. I want to thank you that you said to a gangbanger in Brooklyn, you're not worthless. You are somebody. With every head bowed and every eye closed. I want to say to you tonight, you are somebody. Every one of you, you are somebody. And God wants to bring the best out of you. Even here tonight, God wants to bring the best out of you. I'm going to ask the ushers to come tonight. That's Rudy going to come in a few moments, in a few moments he's going to sing, but I'm going to ask the ushers. Ushers, will you come? I want you to pass out this card tonight. I want you to make that decision. Listen, some of you are so close to being baptized. You're so close to giving your life over to Christ. Tonight could be the night. You could be a part of that baptism on Saturday night. I want to talk to you before you leave this place, but I want you to now to take the card right now. I want you to take a few moments. I want everyone to fill it out because there's a need within every human heart to be touched by God. God can help you. No reason why. You can't decide for Jesus here tonight. I want you to decide. Don't let your husband decide for you, your wife or your parents or your children. You decide on your own. And God is calling you tonight. God bless you. You sing. Please fill this out. We're going to collect it at the end of the program, but I'm going to invite those to come forward and meet me over on the side. No emotional call here tonight. Just come and meet with me. And we'll plan for your baptism. God bless you. Remember, you leave this place, but you never leave the presence of God. He loves you, He'll go on loving you forever.
1: All to Jesus. I surrender all to him, my free. Thank